We're going to read from God's Word now. Um, If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 962, and we're reading from 1 Timothy chapter 6, the second half of verse 2. One Timothy chapter six verse two. These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from this faith. Grace be with you all. Good morning. It's good to be here again. We've got one more week in 1 Timothy uh, as we've gone on this journey in this series. So let's pray and then we'll get into this passage. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for um, the way that you have shaped us and changed us in the book of 1 Timothy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it is rich and good. 
Um, Lord, we pray that this morning as we open up this passage, um, that you again would shape us, that you would challenge us, and that you would change us. Um, We ask for your help in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I don't know if you saw this in the last few weeks, but it happened again. Uh, It was a pastor who bought another private jet. So, here was the guy that did it. Uh, His name is Kenneth Copeland. Uh, We've got that picture up there, Scott. There we go. Looks like a really nice pastor, someone you could get around. Uh, He bought another private jet. Now, uh, this video, you can watch it on Inside Edition. It goes for about 11 minutes. And it's, it's a classic all-time interview of a pastor and their justification for why they bought another private jet. Now, he's asked uh, in this interview, um, so on TV, a bit of context, on TV he said that the reason he needed a private jet was because he couldn't get on commercial airlines because they were, his quote was, tubes full of demons. He's basically saying that the airplane had demons on it and so, you know, he needs his own private jet uh, to buy that. So when he's confronted uh, by this uh, fact with, from this girl in this interview, um, asked why he could say that, you know, how can you say that, are you really saying people are demons? And then uh, he was asked how to, he could justify spending so much money on a jet. It was uh, $54 million. Uh, he said this, this was the quote. He said, uh, sorry, uh, it's a biblical thing. It's a spiritual thing. It doesn't have anything to do with people, the demons bit. People, I love people. You can just hear the American accent. Jesus loves people, but people get pushed in alcohol. Do you think that's a good place for a preacher to be and prepare to preach? And so last night I spent my night in a private jet. No, I didn't. Um, This is his justification for buying a private jet. Uh, He also said that Tyler Perry, if uh, he's an American accent, he gave him such a good deal on this private jet that he couldn't not buy it. That's what he said about this. Now, if you hear this, as you hear this, what do you feel towards this? What thoughts go through your head as you see a pastor spending this much money on a private jet? For me, as I see it, it's a bit of frustration because this stuff happens over and over again. Right? In fact, this time last year, we talked about a guy called Jesse Duplantis who was asking for money from his congregation for his fourth private jet. A little bit earlier than that, 2015, a guy called Creflo Dollar is the pastor's name. He bought a private jet for $64 million the same year where this guy, Kenneth Copeland, bought his first jet. This stuff happens over and over again. How do you feel when you see this? What thoughts run through your head? See, this guy, Kenneth Copeland, he got smashed online, right? If you saw anyone's reaction to this, there was anger and confusion. There was anger, firstly, because even people that were sitting there looking at this, Christians and non-Christians were looking at this guy going, how can a Christian, how can a guy that calls, you know, is called to love the needy and all that sort of stuff spend this much money? There was anger about that. He got slammed by everyone. But then there's also confusion in this. Confusion is people try and figure out what the relationship between Christianity and people who claim to be Christians and money is. Now, what's interesting is we gather together today, as we heard Jenny read out before, Paul actually speaks into this space. He wants us to understand and appreciate the relationship between someone who claims to be a Christian and money. 
what that relationship looks like, how we are supposed to think about money and use money. And so we see this as we get into 1 Timothy 6, but it is worth noting that as Paul addresses this, he's speaking about an issue he's talked about before. So he touches on false teachers, right? And we've seen these false teachers before. We saw them a few weeks ago. They think that their efforts get them God, right? They think that God appreciates them, God values them because of their performance. But the flow-on step to this teaching is that they get paid. So this is their get-quick rich scheme. Three steps. One, be good. Two, get God's favor. Three, bank account full. Right? That would be their book if they were to write it today, and they'd probably make money out of writing a get-quick-rich uh, book because I've heard that the only way to make money from those books is to write one, and I'm sure that that would get money. Three steps, right? Let's make money. How good is that? But Paul addresses this. He speaks into this, and he helps us understand what this relationship between Christianity and money really is. And so if you have your Bibles there, it's from 1 Timothy 6, verse 2, where we had it read out before, but it'll be on the screen as well. He says this, These are the things you are to teach and insist on. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. So how should we think about Christianity and money? How should Christians think about and use their money? Well, Paul addresses this idea that was in the church, and the idea is you can use God to pursue money. You can use God to get money. And Paul looks at this false teaching, right? And he starts to address this false teaching. And the false teaching was, one, be good, two, earn God's favor, three, get money, right? That was their idea. The whole concept of it is that I can be good enough, right? It centers the faith on me and my performance. And if I can perform, then I'm going to get money, Now, that's the false teaching Paul addresses, but let's just be honest, that teaching is attractive, right? How good if we can actually earn money in our bank account simply by doing the right stuff? You know, like if we think about it, if we can just go to church, if we can pray, if we can, uh, some of the things we've looked at in this series, help the widows and help those who are truly in need, if that's going to get me money, how good is that, right? That's an attractive thing, an attractive teaching. So attractive that it didn't just exist in this church in Ephesus, but it flowed throughout history, particularly in wealthy nations, and it's here with us today in the West. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. It's the idea that you can be good enough, that your performance is going to get you health and wealth and prosperity, right? That's the teaching. You know, and it's, it's no coincidence that our uh, guys, our pastors buying private jets teach the prosperity gospel. Right? They teach this idea that you can be good enough to get stuff back. For them, man, they got private jets. Right? How godly must they be to get private jets? But their teaching is you too can get stuff in your bank. You too can get money. Just be good enough. Just do the right stuff, particularly give the right of money. And when you give, you'll get back. Now, if you've ever heard this teaching, often it's attached to a nice little story. For me, one time, uh, I was at a church that taught this, and the story was about a little boy. Of course it was. A little boy that had $150. He was saving all year long to buy this nice toy boat. 
But he went to church, and they said at church, you know, God calls us to give, and if you give, then you'll get back. And so he decided that he'd give $150 to church. He went home, you know, not that sad, but kind of disappointed that that was his money for his toy boat, went to bed, and then the next day got a knock at his door, and there was a toy boat, right? And so give your money because you will get back. Give, and God will bless you. Your, your performance will result in prosperity. Now, when Paul sees this teaching, right, he's not okay with it. He doesn't endure it because there's nothing else on TV. He speaks into it. And he's angered by it, right? I don't know if you got that sense of there, but he says they have left the sound teaching of the Bible. They've left the sound teaching to godly teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sound instruction, sorry, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says they are conceited and they understand nothing. Paul addresses this idea that you can be good enough to get money. And he says this is false. These guys teaching this, they don't get anything. They've got an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels. They don't get anything. In fact, in their pursuit of money, he says they've been robbed of the truth. They have sold their, they have sold their soul for gold. That is what happened. They've been robbed of the truth. In fact, a little bit earlier in the book of 1 Timothy, he even slams it even harder. If we remember from a few weeks ago, he called it a demonic lie. He said, of this teaching, this is not just, you know, some guys who have just started to teach something different. He says, no, this is a demonic lie. This is people who have grasped this. They have left the truth aside and they are believing a lie that will send you to hell. And so Paul addresses this idea that you can use God to get money. He says, this is not biblical at all. This has nothing to do with Jesus. This is teaching centered on yourself. He says, this is a lie. They understand nothing. They're conceited. Right? So when we think about Christianity and how we, you know, Christians use their money, what we see first and foremost is that we can't use God to gain money. But then as we keep reading, what we see is that Paul actually goes broader than that. He doesn't just want to point out the danger of this false teaching. He wants to point out the danger for the desire of wealth. So I don't know if you saw that, but we see this from verse 6. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain, not physical gain, not financial gain, but spiritual gain. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul here wants us to see not just the danger of this teaching, but the danger for the desire of wealth. Right? He, he says that here. And to do this, he describes it as a trap. He says it's a temptation. He says the love of money is a root to all kinds of evil. He says in verse 10, if you saw it there, some have wandered from the faith in the pursuit eager for money. Now, when we think about this, we know this, I think, on a big scale. So if we think about anything that's happened with nations regarding money, so, you know, coal or oil or gold or diamonds, and you see all the hurt that's created because of that, Right? You, you see deaths and land that's destroyed for generations and genocides even, and you look at how that could possibly happen. We know that was because of the love of money. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. We see that on a global scale. 
But the issue for us here today is that Paul's not simply speaking about nations, he's talking about us. He's saying, for us, the desire for wealth is a trap and a temptation that can lead you to hell. In fact, he says in verse 10, some have wandered from the truth, and in so wandering have pierced themselves with many griefs. Literally, the language there of pierced is impaled. They've impaled themselves. Paul calls it a trap and a temptation, which I think is just such helpful language as we think about traps, right? This should bring an image to your mind. The best uh, image that I've ever got of a trap was of the Inuits in Alaska who used to have to live with wolves. Uh, Wolves are an apex predator. Uh, It was kill or be killed. And so the Inuits had to come up with a trap. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but, you know, I've heard it, and it's great, and it illustrates it's something, um, it just, it's such a good illustration. So the wolves, um, what they would do is they would need to kill the wolves, right? That was essentially the bottom line. And so they came up with this trap where they would get a knife, and they would cover the knife in blood, and they would put the knife in the snow, in the ice, so that the knife couldn't move. The wolves would, from around the place, smell the blood out and come and uh, see the knife, and they would start licking the knife, thinking that this knife was going to feed them because the smell of blood was all over it. They thought that this would provide for them life. But because of you know, the coldness and because it was so covered in blood, they continued licking it, but they would cut their uh, tongues open, and they would keep licking. The blood would start going everywhere, and then these wolves thinking they were getting life, would literally kill themselves and bleed to death. Now, Paul says, this is what the desire for money is. It's a knife covered in blood. It promises life, right? It promises security. It promises everything. But as we go back to it and lick it, it will kill us. It will destroy us. This is a trap. This is a temptation that can lead us to hell. He says, some have wandered from the faith in the pursuit of money. Now, the most heartbreaking thing about this passage is that this is not a hypothetical. You know, if you've been around church for any amount of time, chances are you've actually seen this happen before to people eager for money. For me, uh, a friend of mine a few years ago, I was his um, leader on schoolies and then after schoolies, it was a Christian camp and afterwards he became a leader at a youth in his own own church and then we got to see each other once a year at this conference. And the first year that we met, it was great. Uh, It was so exciting. He was a passionate guy. He had heaps of potential and um, he had just started studying uni. Uh, He was doing economics. He just started studying, was telling me about his journey and serving, loving it, all that sort of stuff. It was great. We encouraged each other in that moment. The next year came around, we met each other again, and uh, in the second year, uh, you could tell that, yeah, he was still serving, but you could tell that his heart had begun to shift. So uni had picked up and began to get uh, a little bit more crazy. Uh, He had started working in a part-time job in uh, a bank, and uh, you, you could see that in his heart, he was still serving, still passionate, still lots of potential, but began to shift. The third year, uh, he said that this is going to be his last year serving and his last year at the conference because uh, next year he's going to have a full-time job and have to study at the same time and it's going to be crazy. And you could tell that no longer was there any passion at all involved in his serving or in his faith, but it was all in his job and in his study. The year later, 
met with people from his church and talked to him about you know, his journey. This guy, he wasn't there that year, talked to the people from his church. He was no longer serving and he was hardly ever at church. What Paul's talking about here is not a hypothetical. There's not an idea, you know, that he's trying to just get you to give more or whatever else like that. This stuff happens. Verse 10 is real, it's true. Some people wander from their faith, eager for money. Money is dangerous, it's a trap, it's a temptation. The desire for riches, the desire for more is a trap that will kill us. Now, did you notice how he kind of contrasts contentment there with discontentment? So he said contentment, when we get contentment, when we are pursuing godliness with contentment, there is great gain in that. He talks about food and uh, clothes there. And the idea there is if we are content with food and clothes, we recognize anything more than food and clothes is a gift that we'll see in the next few verses that God has given us to enjoy. But we don't need that stuff. We just recognize God has given us that stuff. And we can be content in what we have. Now, contentment is the fruit of a heart that trusts God. Contentment is, a, is the fruit of a heart that recognizes God is God and that He is in control and He will provide all that I need. But then we get this contrast between contentment and discontentment. And discontentment is where we uh, look at what we've got, but we always want more, right? Where maybe it's a little more. Maybe it's not much more, just a little more or a lot more where we're never satisfied, but discontentment reveals a heart that has begun to fall deeper and deeper in love with money, the desire for riches. Discontentment reveals a heart that wants more riches. So we have to see that what Paul's saying here is present for us, is real for us, is a big deal for us. There is a danger here that we all face. And we have to ask this question, do we love money? Do we love riches? Are we in the pursuit of more? Are we discontent with what we have? Because discontentment reveals a heart that has begun to fall in love with money. Paul says this desire, it's a trap. It's a temptation. It will lead you away. Some have wandered from their faith in the pursuit of this stuff. So when we think about it, how are we supposed to interact, think, use our money? Well, Paul says, firstly, we can't use God to get money. can't use God and pursue money. Secondly, we have to understand the danger of the desire for riches. But then thirdly, Paul actually does want to show us what this relationship is. He does want it to show us how we think and how we use our money. And what he's going to show us is that when we get money right, we get God right. right? He wants to show us that the way we think and interact with money is that firstly, we pursue God and then we use money. We get God right and we get money right. And we see this from verse 11. He says this, But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, endurance, gentleness, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will, all, uh, will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. 
How do we think about money? Well, Paul here wants us to get God right, and then we'll get money right. He wants us to pursue God, to have God at the center of our faith, not us, and then use money. And here in this passage, he's talking about getting God right. He's talking about for us as individuals, when we grasp who God really is and we pursue God, and to do this, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Right? Notice, not fight the fight of finance, but fight the fight of faith. And so what does it mean to fight the fight of faith? Well, here in these verses, we get three things here, and they're all centered on who God is. Three things for what it means to fight the fight of faith. Number one, we flee. We flee from all this. We flee from the desire for more. We flee from discontentment. We flee from the desire of riches and eagerness for money. We flee from false teaching, which says that you can be good enough and your bank account will be filled. And then we don't just flee from those things, but we pursue Jesus. We follow God. And he says, actually, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. And although these six virtues might, uh, might seem a little bit strange, I think essentially what he's saying here is actually just follow Jesus, who is the embodiment of these six virtues. And not only that, he is the one that enables us to do these things. Jesus is righteousness. He bought righteousness with his blood. Jesus is godliness, and he showed us what godliness looked like, and he enables us to be godly. Jesus is the center of our faith. Jesus is love, and he showed love perfectly. Jesus endured to the point of death on the cross, and he shows us and enables us to endure as well. And Jesus is gentle and showed us perfectly what gentleness is. He's essentially saying, flee the desires of this world and follow Jesus. Center your life on Jesus, where Jesus is Lord of all. See, Jesus must be Lord of all. He has to be Lord of all, or he's nothing at all. And basically what this is saying is flee the world, follow Jesus, pursue Jesus. So that's the first thing of what it means to fight the good fight. The second is we take hold of eternal life. Verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. We hold fast to eternity. We hold fast to the fact that there is something more that we don't just live for the here and now, that we don't just have a five and a ten-year plan, but we are living our lives for eternity. We fight the fight, the good fight, to recognize that we are living for something greater. So, so when people look at our lives, when people look at your life, would they say you're living for now or you're living for eternity? What it means to fight the good fight of faith is we hold fast to eternal life. And then finally, verse 13 and 14, we do this all fueled by who God is. He says, In the sight of God who gives life to everything, I command you keep these commands, sorry, without spot or blemish until, and then he goes on and speaks about who Jesus is and who God is. Now, we could sit on those verses all day, right? They're so rich and so powerful. But I think what Paul is saying here is simply, Do this, fight the fight of faith, not because of what people say, but because of what God says. Not because of, you know, who people say you are, but who God says you are and who God is, right? He talks about do this, command, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. Do this until Jesus comes back. Do this because God will bring this about in his own time. Do this because God is the blessed and only ruler. He is the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Do this because God is immortal. He lives in unapproachable light. Do this because God, no one has ever seen God or can see, and to God belong honor and might forever. See what he's saying there? He's saying, do this because of who God is. Do this fueled, not by what people say, but by what God says and by by who God is. 
So we fight the fight, not of finance, but we fight the fight of faith. We center our lives on Jesus, not on ourselves. And we flee. We flee the world and we follow Jesus. We hold fast to eternal life. And we do this fueled by who God is. What he's saying is pursue God. Get God right. In our lives, when we think about money, the first thing we need to do is we need to get God right. We need to pursue God. But then Paul says, use money. Right? Notice this in verse 17. He says, use money. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for this coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, he says, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Keep, hold fast to sound teaching. Keep preaching. Uh, Some have uh, departed from their faith, going after other teaching. And then he finishes with grace be with you all. But do you see what he says about money? He says, use money. Get God right, and then we use money. Pursue God, and then we use money. And to do this, he says, don't put your hope in wealth, the uncertainty of wealth. Right? And if we've, been around in a, if we've been around for any amount of time, we know that wealth is uncertain. We've experienced that. M- maybe you're sitting here, maybe you haven't experienced the uncertainty of wealth, but wealth is uncertain. Wealth does change and fade. It's different today as it will be tomorrow. Wealth is uncertain, but God is not. He says, don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. God who doesn't change. God who doesn't shift, God who's the same yesterday and today as he is tomorrow, the God who loves you and that that's firm and fixed because of what he's done in Christ. Put your hope in him. Put your hope in God, not in wealth, but then he says, use wealth. He says, command those who are rich in this present age to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and to be willing to share. We get God right, but then we get money right. We pursue God and then we use our money to help more people see God. That's the point of this all, right? And in so doing, as we use money for this end, we are taking hold of life that is truly life. So how are we supposed to think about money? Well, firstly, we get God right. And then we get money right. We pursue God and then we use money. But as we get to the end of this passage and really the end of this series, we do have to think about what this actually means for us. What practically does this mean for us to get God right and get money right? What does it mean for us to pursue God and to use money? Well, I think it means at least three things. Uh, as we go about doing this, as we do all that God has called us to be, as we live in the mess, I think it means practically three things from this passage. Number one, we need to get God right. Number one, we need to center our lives on Jesus. If we call, our, if we call ourselves Christians, if we call ourselves in on this, maybe here today, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're just wondering what it's all about. We have to center our lives on Jesus. That's what it's all about. The faith, the biblical story, Christianity, it's all about Christ. And so we need to get him right. Now, how do we know if we've got him right? How do we know if he is the center of our lives, if he is Lord of all? Well, I think one of the diagnostic questions of this passage particularly is if we lost everything that we had financially, but still had Jesus, would we have enough? If we lost our jobs, our houses, our money, all the stuff that we had, but still had Jesus, would we be content with that? 
This was a, a challenge we actually received a few weeks ago when James from Open Doors came and spoke to us. If you weren't here, uh, Open Doors is a mis- mission agency uh, around the world to help people in the hardest places keep being Christian. And he told us this story of a guy called Din Van Zandt. Din was, uh, became a Christian in a community of 100. Uh, people started to become Christians, and then the government stepped in, and all of a sudden their persecution begin, uh, began to happen. This was all, this happened in Vietnam. And persecution began to fall on him. And um, remember what James said. He said, uh, when the persecution started, he started to lose his food. So they took cattle through his rice farms. They cut down his trees that he was going to sell. Uh, He was an entrepreneur. He was going to sell those. So they cut down his wealth. Then they came in and his pig, right? He had a pig that he was kind of growing. And one day he would sell, not eat. He would sell that pig. And that pig was worth three years wages. They came in and they cut the pig's throat. He lost home. He lost it all. And he was asked, why do you endure in all this? Why do you keep going despite losing everything? And do you remember what James said He said, it's because I know Jesus. That's what a life centered on Jesus looks like. And hearing his story, man, that's challenging to me to think about that. Would we be the same if we lost everything but had Jesus? Would we have enough? A life centered on Jesus is where we have Jesus as our Lord of all where everything that we do is about him and where we could actually say and recognize, even if I lost everything but had Jesus, I would have enough. So number one, we need to get God right. We need to center our lives on God. Number two, we need to realize that we are the rich in the present age. We are the rich. In fact, this week I was doing, uh, I found some articles about this. So one article said that Australians are the richest, the wealthiest per person in the world. We live in the wealthiest country in the world. It was saying, actually, uh, after that, you could put, there was one website where you could put your, um, how much you earn each, each year into this website, and it would tell you where you sit in the world's um, population in terms of how rich you were. So just for uh, reference this morning, if you earn $47,000 a year, you're in the top 1% richest people in the world. If you earn $39,000 a year, you're in the top 2% richest people in the world. If you earn 10 grand, so less than $200 a week, you're in the top 20% richest in the world. We are the rich. We are the rich in the present age. And so what that means is we have to take Paul's words seriously here. We've seen the danger of money. We've seen it's a trap and a temptation, but his words to the rich of the present age. You see what he says? He says, be generous. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous. Be willing to share. We can't just think as we gather here this morning, as we read this sort of stuff, we can't just think this is about someone else. This is about the person of the next you know, tax bracket up from me. No, we are the rich. We have to take this warning seriously, this temptation seriously, because as the richest in the world, what this means is we have crosshairs on us From the devil going, okay, these guys are the most susceptible, I think, to falling to this temptation. We have to take this seriously. We have to recognize the danger and the temptation of this because we are the rich of the present age. And then number three, the last thing it means for us is that we we have to take God's call seriously and give generously. Right? That's, That's what he says. That's what God says here. Give generously. Now, let's talk about this. Why do we give? How much do we give? Who do we give to? 
Why do we give? Well, first and foremost, I hope you can see today you don't give simply because your pastor wants more money. We talked about that last week. It doesn't work like that. Uh, So that's not why we're talking about this. Uh, We often, uh, in our giving spot here at Southside, we often talk about why we give and, and uh, and the motivation to give. But here, I think one of the reasons that we give After he talks about the danger of money, I think he talks about the reason to give because as we give, it's actually one of the easiest way to fight the the danger of the desire for riches. Giving is a tool that we have in the hand to fight this trap, this temptation. Because when we give, we're saying to our heart, which is so easily inclined to love money, we're saying, this is not my God. God is my God. Money is not my God. This is a tool that we have to fight the desire for wealth. Right? So we see why we give, how much do we give? What does it mean for us practically to give? Well, um, you know, we've walked through all sorts of awkward topics throughout this series, so why don't we just in, jump in right in and talk about this as well. Um, throughout, often when people think about giving in uh, church, they think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, uh, there was, uh, they talked about tithing in the Old Testament, which was 10%. And so often what churches do is they go, okay, so this is what the Old Testament does, let's do this in the New Testament. But there's a few problems with that idea. Firstly, in the Old Testament, they did have to give 10%, but this was a starting point for them. In fact, most people recognize that in the Old Testament, they ended up giving about 25% when you took in all their other duties, right? So, so that's kind of just interesting to recognize that. But when we get to the New Testament, it doesn't talk about tithing anyway, it talks about giving generously. That's the principle. So what does it mean to give generously? Well, some could argue that it's kind of the 10% is the starting point. Others might argue that it's more around the 25%. So, so with, when we see the principle in the New Testament that's giving generously, it's not tithing, it's not a specific number, it's giving generously, that starts to shift things. You know, in older churches, they used to do the tithes and offerings, you know, when they gave out those, uh, the, their version of the buckets. Uh, and in that moment, it wasn't the tithes or offerings, or the tithes slash offerings, it was the tithes and offerings. It's the idea that you give and then you give more. We give generously. We're called to give generously. Now, I hope you can see the number doesn't matter, you know, in terms of exactly what we give. For some of us, we're going to be able to give generously more than others. For some, the number's going to be different to others. But at this point, we hold on to the widow at the temple in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus saw this widow who gave literally 10 cents, And Jesus holds the widow up and says, this is someone who gets it because she gave 100% of what she had. This is not about final numbers. This is about our hearts and this is about our generosity. So we're called to give generously, whether we have full-time jobs or part-time jobs, whether we are uni students or full-time workers, whether we are retired or whether we fit somewhere else in there, the call in our hearts is to give generously, To, to think about what this means and wrestle with what does it look like for us to give generously. And then finally, who do we give to? Well, throughout the Bible, we're called to give to what God is doing in this world, and often that challenge is through the local church. We're called to give here, but if you are skeptical of that, and if you think, again, this is just a pastor asking for money, give somewhere else. Give to someone else that, where God is working in this world and what God is doing in this world, because this is less about Southside's needs and more about our hearts, more about our ability to do what God calls us to do, and more about the danger of wealth the danger of the desire for more, the danger of the desire for riches. See, as we've seen, this desire, this love for money, it's a root of all kinds of evil. It's a trap and a temptation that will kill us. 
It's uh, verse 10 we saw, some have wandered from the faith, impaled themselves eager for more. This is less about Southside and more about our hearts and more about what God calls us to do. So we give generously. So how do we think about money? How are we supposed to use our money? Well, we get God right and we get money right. We pursue God and we use money, not the other way around. And we do this because this is what God calls us to do. And this is the danger in the desire for riches. So may we give generously and may God use our giving so that more people everywhere can grasp the life that is truly life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much uh, as we think about this for the challenge of your word. Thank you that you speak to us and that you challenge us where we're at. God, we pray that this morning that this challenge and that your word would hit us today. That we wouldn't just be impacted for a moment or motivated for a moment, but that this would change and shift our lives. We ask God and plead, God, that you would work through us and in us. God, we want to see the danger of the desire for more. We want to see that we live in a country where this is what everyone is saying. We need more. Help us recognize that danger and help us recognize your call on our lives. God, we ask that we would be a people who give generously. And we pray more than that, that you would use our giving so that more people everywhere can see the good news of Jesus. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. We pray that people everywhere would take hold of the life that is truly life. And we ask, God, that we may be a part of what you're doing in this world. We pray it in Jesus' name.